Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. Well, good morning, Mike. Good morning. So uh, a couple of things come to mind I'd like to, to just talk through today, but uh, they're, they're all wrapped up in stress and, and how we handle stress. And I think uh, I, want, I want to hear your take on yeah, just how do we view that through a, through a gospel lens? Because uh, where I've obviously experienced it personally is, you know, as, as, as work has picked up, I've found areas of work have been you, you, like just how I'm thinking about life. Suddenly my job is everywhere and lingering through my head. And, and uh, I had um, recently someone, uh, a friend of mine, leave their job because of a similar thing of just, the stress of the job. Um, and so there's this reality that, yeah, uh, there are stressful events, but as, as, uh, I also just went through and and got to observe, there was a, there was a pretty, uh, a pretty wide company, uh, discussion going on that, um, some people did not like the direction of a company. Um, some people really did, and um, anyway, at the end of this, once once they finally reached a conclusion, I, I remember hearing that uh, a manager at the company was actually advocating that, you know, we, we just went through so much as a company, as employees, we should get some time off for everyone to kind of deal with the trauma of all of this you know, disagreement. And, and I remember hearing that being like, I, you know, I don't think that's the answer. I don't, I don't, that's, that, that seems to be uh as we've talked before, not really cultivating a, a good, strong uh, individual to, to, to handle that. Sh- shouldn't we shouldn't we be a little bit more resilient than that? Maybe that's a harsh critique, um, but but here I am, kind of in the middle of I don't I don't I don't know if the answer is just get away and take a vacation and refresh. I I, I just really wonder if there's a better frame to approach the problem of how do you cope with stress. Mm-hmm. Um, what's what else is there other than these two uh, polar uh, positions? That's a, that's a good word you use there, uh, resilient, and I think it's related to stress. So uh, perhaps we ought to just uh, clear out some of the underbrush before we get going into it. Um, so scripture, God does say, be anxious for nothing, but I don't think anxiety and stress are the same thing. Mm. It's a good differentiation. Yeah. In fact, this, this house is held together by certain stresses. And um, and to be able to absorb stress. Um, but today, I've yet to see the two before sweating it out, you know, mm-hmm. being anxious about it. <laughs> Maybe we ought to be, but... <laughs> and um, stress, uh, stress is like friction, which has a place. So first of all, I think we ought to imagine a, a bell curve. And in a bell curve, as you well know, there's a uh, there's a certain amount of stress which is beneficial. It can peak and then collapse quickly on the other side. So there's you can be over um, 
stressed. And at that point, I think then people become anxious. But mm. stress, I think, is just a given. And, um, you, you know, your car doesn't, uh, stress involves some friction. And so, for example, your car doesn't operate without friction. If the tires are um, stress-free on the road, uh, you're generally on ice and going nowhere. So this, um, I think we ought to start there to talk about um, healthy stresses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be helpful. Mm-hmm. And to that, um, there's a couple of different things that come to mind. First of all, um, I don't think most of us uh, pray contemplatively the Lord's Prayer. But I think if we did, it's, it's not an unremarkable, or it's not just a toss-off phrase for Christ to say, and, uh, oh, give us this day our daily bread. Now let's get into the real stuff. Giving us, uh, what do you think, why would you say give us this day our daily bread? Yeah, uh, uh, a couple of reasons come to mind. Um, one being, you know, we're told that tomorrow isn't promised, so give us mm-hmm. enough for today. Um, mm-hmm. uh, two, I think, I think there's probably a level of contentment as we are not to want too much to go fill our, our barns, but we are to want just enough. Uh, you know, we've talked about confidence before, so only having enough for today definitely fills your confidence uh, in the right places. I think all that and more. Yeah, <clears throat> I think a lot of anxiety and stress is is uh, all future forecasting. Mm, yeah. Um, so a lot of uh, in my age, I know there's a lot of my generation are now stressing or anxious over will they outlive their. Um, pension and retirement. Mm. So it means they're stressing out like 20, 30 years out. That's a hard way to live. But we do. And um, again, stress is different because um, it can, it can put, it it should put things into the present. And into the present would be, uh, well, perhaps you ought to stress if you're living within your means. Perhaps you ought to stress some spiritual disciplines of silence, solitude, frugality uh that's a word that if you spot most americans first five letters they couldn't spell it (laughs) um stress can mean you can stress what does the phrase living within our means mean you'd have to redefine living within our collaborative collective means Hmm. all you'd have to redefine all of them you know, one of the downsides of COVID, one of the downsides of COVID is you can get desperate some evening and have nothing else but to turn on Zombieland HGTV, to which we've watched enough of these house hunter shows now to know it doesn't matter what that young couple says they can afford. Well, we're looking for homes to have 300,000. That blankly blank agent immediately takes them to a place. Now, this is 350. But you're gonna love it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good Augustinian theology. We are what we love, and so sure enough, they fall in love with it, and somehow they find a way to live beyond their means. And now they're introducing stresses that will probably are putting them at the peak of the bell curve, if not over the other side. And the other side is anxiety. 
and the whole notion of be anxious for nothing goes away. I'd like to suggest to you that, that some of the phrasing that we hear in the business world, where we hear it actually everywhere, is nonsensical. And it's particularly true about work-life balance. Because balance is a myth. It doesn't exist. Where it does exist, rather, is in what's called stasis or no movement, teeter-totter. When a teeter-totter is balanced, what's moving? Nothing. Nothing. And the anxiety that that induces is keeping it all balanced. Hmm. Hmm. And it, it also assumes if you take off or put on from one side, like obviously it will affect impact the other yeah yeah the um but i do think there is a myth out there that people are trying to find that kind of uh quote balance which they really equate with serenity mm. and so i mean the extreme example would be someone chunking it all and going to live on some island somewhere and i don't know how they live but the fact is it's kind of this um we're going to plug from everything and the old adage is, nice work if you can get it. Um, it. It doesn't take into account that there are tensions instead, and that these tensions are just a given in the heavens and the earth. They're just a given. I mean, the greatest, the, 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 the most profound tension are, is created people with finite capacities have been given inklings of infinity and eternity. What do you do with that? Yeah, I guess, yeah, my eternal self isn't quite in balance with my temporal. <laughs> Good way to put it. That's right. And whoa, let's keep the, we, we joked before. Jesus didn't balance being God man. Whoa, I'm, I'm God now. Whoa, I'm a little more man now. Um, it was. It's called. I love these phrases from seminary. You know, the hypostatic union. Um, yeah. No. Where do we come up with these words? Well, we keep them to keep it. You know, a cottage industry. You got to be inside the cottage to get what we're talking about. That it's it, they're instead they're called attention, and these things are held in tension. And the reason they're held in tension is the finite man mind can't wrap its mind around it. Well, of course it can't, because it's infinite. A finite mind doesn't have the capacity to wrap its mind around it. Instead, prior to and I, I do, point the finger a lot at the rationalistic enlightenment, prior to that, these are just givens that you defer, submit, obey, because there's more going on than I can see, nor ear, hear, nor even enter into our imagination. And you best walk on the ancient paths to have a good life. 
I want to I want to stay on the the tension piece there for a second because I really do think it's a profound difference in understanding. Uh, when when I first heard you say say that, like it started to resonate a little bit because I never quite bought the work life balance. Uh, just to draw that out a little bit is the the notion that if if I give in to work, it should be assumed that I'm taking away from my you know quote unquote life. And if I take time off of work, that is the 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 scale is going more towards my life. And this like symbiotic relationship where if I take one away, I'm giving to the other. Mm-hmm. And and where a good example of why tension is a better way to view that is, uh, you know, in the in the engineering world, you have situations where you're you're on call, particularly software engineering. You're on call, um, typically some type of shift. You know, if something goes wrong in, uh, especially if it's if it's a server related service. Uh, you need to deal with that. You have customers that are using your service online. And and so often there's this kind of claim that that pushes against the work-life balance. We need to be mindful of that. But it goes back to what we talked about. There are a couple, a couple of reasons I, I don't think that's helpful. One is if, uh, if, I'm, if I'm on call and something goes wrong, it is going to require me to step away from quote-unquote life activities and what's going on. Um, but there is like a responsibility element. Um, there is, uh, a stress when you're on call of dealing with something like a, a stress that's going to push you to, to a higher level as not only as an engineer, but also as, as an individual in handling that situation, there's like a maturing element that goes on. There's a lot of character building, uh, in that situation that you're, you're learning to assume that none of that then actually bleeds back into your personal life and develops you and has a positive impact on your personal life because they're completely separate things is, is a fallacy. Mm -hmm. And so that's where, yes, there's a, there's a tension uh, in this example of getting pulled too far in that direction. Um, Those things weighing on you too much and stretching you too much, maybe, and, but the path to health there is different because the path to health isn't necessarily just pulling away and never, never going on call or, or never, never dealing with uh, this thing. Um, and I think that's, that's really helpful for me to think about is like there are certain times where I'm going to be stretched more than others and that's okay. Not, I'm, I'm learning to, to handle that tension and sometimes that means my personal life stretches. Sometimes that means work stretches. Sometimes that means I stretch, but I don't know. What do you think about that? No, I think that's, I'm, I'm listening and thinking, yeah, um, I agree. Because think about where's most of the stuff about work-life balance come from? Well, let me put it another way. How do you think this would sound if you're in Afghanistan this morning? Mm. Iraq. Yeah. Venezuela. Yeah. Honduras, China, Russia. It would sound like, where the hell do you guys come from? (laughs) Balance. Balance. 1.5 million, somewhere in there. 
exiled out of Miramar, just put on boats and shipped off to atolls and islands. Balance? Balance? Balance is mostly written by people who can afford to write about that stuff. They actually control the teeter-totters, how they view it. There's no teeter-totter. So what's more what you just said? The stress, so it can be healthy, is what uh, is resplendent throughout Scripture. You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. But we live differently. Or, I think we've done a good job over the last hundred plus years. It's shutting that out of our mind that we do control how we will live tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And we're going to create balance. This reminds me a bit of, um, we've talked about, maybe we've talked about it before, but a uh, seven-year-old book now, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind. Mm. Uh, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukanoff, probably butchered both their names, but um, Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, we're big fans of a lot of what he says, uh, writes. And, uh, but they talk about this new moral culture of safetyism. And... Uh, so you have uh, paranoid parenting they talk about, the growth of bureaucracy, and then we see this, in, especially in this current administration, the idea of cradle to grave, uh, we'll take care of you. Um, and then we also see it with what Christian Smith talks about in the church, but the gospel, if you really dive down deep enough into it, is moralistic, therapeutic deism. Well, what that creates is uh, anxiety in people, Christians included, for a safe life, a safe God. We go to church and tithe and all that, and then our kids will grow up and they and uh, daughters won't get pregnant and out of wedlock, and our kids will all get into the right schools, and we'll be able to post them on Facebook and brag about them, and um, life's good. Yeah, well, you bring up a really good point, and that is uh, anxiety and, and kind of the overflow of that into into our faith tradition. Um, you know, if someone listening to this and, and maybe starts to resonate with some of the things we're saying could say, yeah, I, I get it, and maybe tension is a, a better way to look at things, but that still doesn't impact or change the fact that I'm waking up in the middle of the night and my brain is going crazy with all of the, you know, and I can't go to sleep. Yeah. So, um, I, I, I have heard, unfortunately, just anxiety mentioned over and over again. And, and I think the tough part is today you hear it as it's something I'm struggling with, you know, it's something as a, as a believer, I'm struggling with anxiety and it's just sort of like accepted as a, as a, I don't know, an illness, you know, um, yeah, yeah give me some give me some medication well, yeah right right and and your your point is is valid we we are instructed uh, to to not be anxious so where's one like where's the disconnect 
but then two, what is the what is the right response if that's something I'm quote unquote you know struggling with? Uh, how do as believers how do we rightly handle that? Well, it's a, a great question, and to me, um, one of uh, the, my laments is: uh, when was the last time you actually? were invited to join a group on spiritual disciplines or practice the spiritual disciplines or be held accountable. Um, these things are bodily, Pat, and we try to brain our way out of bodily habits. Huh. Yeah, that's, a, that's funny you say that because the first thing that comes to mind for me often is, well, when's the last time you looked at Instagram or Facebook? or Twitter. Could could it be that those things are increasing your anxiety? And often as a believer, uh, I just think in our circles, we think, oh no, but we, we should be able to do those things and still be fine. But, but yeah, maybe you're right. <laughs> if we are bodily, then the lack of solitude, the lack of silence would have physical effects. Without a doubt. <clears throat> Without a doubt, this is, um, you know, there's no, there's so many subtle layers in Lewis's uh, third book in the trilogy, Space Trilogy, That Hideous Strength. Uh, but one is that the, uh, you know, the, the head of uh, the, this institute, which seeks to abolish human nature and control the world, is literally just a head. It's, been, it's a head that's been kept alive. There's no body. And uh, that's one of the, Lewis is usually a little even more subtle than that, but this has to do with, we have, and I think he alluded to this in The Weight of Glory, this is most profound just in the last 120, 30, 40 years, that um, this whole notion of training our body, it'd be like this, Pat, because I know you work out and, um, can you imagine just sitting at a desk and just thinking about working out and what that would do to your muscles? Get me ripped. <laughs> <laughs> You'd end up looking like the rest of us. <laughs> but that's what we do. We so we and then we just think about it some more. And we won't even talk about it. Um, as if that Yeah. You yeah. know, it's the old it's the old enlightenment adage that here's how you change head to heart to hands, it, which is exactly bass backwards. Yeah. Well, it's it's funny because there are studies that show how um, you know, kind of thinking through or, or mentally uh, thinking about golf, for example, can actually improve your golf ability. But that also assumes you have a developed golf <laughs> ability. Yes. <laughs> so so yes, it can enhance, uh, but it doesn't doesn't build, especially in a world where we're talking about habits or disciplines that are not even there. There aren't even foundations of that as believers, then you can't expect to mental your way out of that. You can't That's use right. mental, mental Kung Fu on that one. In fact, in fact, uh, I, I, years ago, anyway, this is a little dated now, 20 plus years. Uh, I knew uh, the owners of a gym and uh, I was a member there and they said, here's our business plan. Roughly 60% of the people that become members hardly ever show up. And we yeah. happen to know 
Yep. If they don't show up, they get more anxious about not showing up by thinking about it. So you say, we have some people here that haven't been here in years. Wow, but obviously still paying members. Thinking about it can actually increase your anxiety. Wow. Just thinking about it. I, I think that thinking about work-life balance actually increases anxiety. Oh, yeah. That's that's pretty profound. I don't know about that. It's just you know, product of it. It's what I've experienced. And it, But it's no different than uh, periods of my life when I haven't worked out. So I start thinking about it. I get anxious. I say, dang, come on, what's wrong? You start beating up on yourself. And yeah. And the more you beat up on yourself and say, man, I'll tell you what, that's the only thing that's going to make me feel good right now is a good, good red wine. Hey, that's working out. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank God for antioxidants. <laughs> I'm going to have a, go have a beer because it's got protein in it. <laughs> you see, this is the rational mind. Who was it that said the purpose of uh, the uh, enlightened? I mean, of rational of rationality is to prove the limits of rationality. Rationality is also a, a, a bell curve that you, you get it to a certain point, and then it begins to becomes rationalism and all oh, rationalize why you don't go to the gym. And, uh, but all the time, you're just you're just um, compounding this problem of stress and uh, rather anxiety. And so the stress that, as we've talked about before, the stress required to get um, your car to operate, to create uh, the friction, that um, all these things, that to even uh, build muscle if you're going to go to the gym, requires stress. You put stress on your heart. They have systems now to test the stresses on the financial system because there's a, a certain amount of stress is healthy because every investment is not 100% guaranteed for the return. These are normal. Well, that made me think of uh, just the this idea of overthinking it, and mm -hmm. the, the workout examples is really good. I think it's similar with work life balance. You know, from constantly thinking about work life balance, it is it's pretty wild how like work gets so big and huge and overwhelming, and it's like things can they suddenly you can't handle the reality of the tension because. You're not living in the reality of the tension. That thing is so huge. It's pulling on you so much when it, sometimes in life it's, it's actually not. It's like working out, you know, when you think about, oh, I don't want to go work out because it's, it's just going to be all this stress and, you know, I, yeah, I probably should, but I don't have the energy for it. And it, it, I need to give, you know, my, all this energy just to get a good workout in and like, you overthink this where if you just walked to the gym or went, went for a jog outside, it doesn't actually take that much, but you sort of begin to live outside of reality when you start thinking about it too much. And I think that's pretty, yeah, that's pretty insightful. Because suddenly... No, it's just school of hard knocks. So when, when yeah, I but tore it's... my quad tendon, I, when I started to go back to therapy, I had four degrees of bend in my right leg and so you start there yeah yeah and i could lift i don't know some paltry uh, called paltry amount of weight and you, you go no nah, that's not paltry that's called 
start where you are. Mm. So yeah. I think the stress you're talking about, the anxiety rather, is I think we've created these uh, phantasmic ideas about what is life, what is the faith, what is the gospel. And uh, a lot of it has to do with uh, just my personal peace. So peace is everything balanced, nothing moving. <sighs> now you can carve those times out if you get up in the morning or find some time apart from when the kids aren't up. You can begin to practice silence and solitude, but... <laughs> Not when you're not when you're at the gym, not when you're in the middle of the work day. I think that's an illusory view. So let's think about this in two ways, Pat. Number one, uh, Nathan Hatch is a well recognized scholar, especially in the evangelicalism, and he says one of the that one of the most pronounced characteristics of evangelicalism is immediatism. Mm, mm -hmm. I think you know what that means. Yeah. So the idea that, sure, do you want to uh, be lifting what Pat's lifting on the bench? Three years. <laughs> what? Fascinating, by the way, in his confessions, Augustine came to appreciate to actually begin to embody some of the things that we believe is roughly three years to embody. Second, I, th I think that we have, um, this, is, this is becoming a more acute problem. That's why the, the book, The Coddling in the American Mind, I think is helpful because they trace out six um, causes of the emergence of this coddling a lot have to do with the way parenting is done bureaucracy um, but i would even say in the church it's how we uh, truncated the gospel is how uh, some people write about it, or shrunk it and so the tension in the bible of the fact that we have been saved are being saved and might be future saved is not even noticed by most of my friends. That is a tension in the Bible. Had been saved, being saved, that you might be saved. What? See, we've contributed to this by coddling the American Christian. And so if you even take the stress out of that, the good, healthy tension, rather, stress, then you become people who are adverse to stress, just allergic to it. I'm feeling really anxious about this, so I got to get out of here. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say I want to want to pick at that a little bit, just because uh, I imagine someone listening to this may be like, "Wait a second, what?" Uh, often, 
you've been saved, you are being saved, you will be saved is, is what we naturally pick up on. You, uh, you said you might be saved. Those, mm-hmm. those, you're, you're actually viewing those as not three of the same thing, just in different times or different perspectives of time. But that that third one is, is unique. Um, I, I think it's worth, where, where does that come from? Where, what is this, this idea of you might be saved? In, in contrast, oh, I was up in Michigan smoking some cannabis, and uh, <laughs> that's a joke, <laughs> listeners. Uh, Kathy and I went back to my home state and driving down 94. I think every mile we saw cannabis billboards. So the state's become a pot state. It's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> no, it has to do with it's analogous with the whole marital gospel, and in uh, in good Jewish tradition, and in many Christian traditions, by the way, where you're betrothed. Remember, Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Joseph was the, called the husband of Mary. So betrothed means married, but you're also prepare a year apart. They would, <clears throat> the husband, go and prepare a home, and they both would prepare by proving their uh, faithfulness and purity and preparedness. And then you have the consummation. They, so they will be married. So they have been married, they are being married, and they will be married. However, as the case of Joseph, a righteous man, he finds out his wife is pregnant out of wedlock in the wedlock of the consummation after the final banquet and sought to put her away. That might happen. There might be those who have been saved, have not been being saved. And what happens at the wedding banquet? See, now you have all these mysterious phrases that Jesus says. Take that person and throw them in the outer outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing. Yeah, I never knew you. <laughs> you go, <laughs> what? Hmm. The bad eye has not seen nor ear heard nor even entered into the imagination of things that God has stored up for us. And they are both wondrous and daunting. And I think the daunting part of it, as my old friend Mike Iaconelli, before he died, I think his last book was about, uh, you know, whatever happened to the uh, terribleness of God, that uh, he's not to be trifled with. He's not to be, uh, as uh, Rousseau uh, supposedly said when he passed away, and they asked, as an atheist, don't you even care? I mean, what about God? And he goes, God will forgive. That's his job. I mean, there's a callousness and a flippancy there that I often see in American Christianity. And there's no sense of, uh, very little sense anyway. I mean, I saw this, uh, you know, several years ago in a church, and when they went through Corinthians, glided right past these passages that we are being saved. And I betrothed you, so here's to your question, Pat, 2 Corinthians 11, 2. I betrothed you that I might present you as a pure virgin. Might. It's one of the thrusts of the book of Colossians that they have been saved, but being saved means they are privileged to fill up 
what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. See, for most of my friends, they view salvation as either saved or not. If you've been saved, you're saved. Once for all and you're good to go. Ticket punched. Christ's sufferings are 100% sufficient to be saved. That's exactly right. But Paul points out his attention. They're not 100% sufficient for being saved. That requires our suffering with him. Coddled Christians don't want to suffer. And their bodies rule. And their bodies opt for comfort. Comforted by the thought, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. Just get through this. Balance out your life. Keep it even keel. I submit to you two-thirds of the worldwide church would find that to be crazy. You'd be an Iraqi Christian and try living that way. And as as with all things, it seems the the path to uh, uncoddling, <laughs> uh, you were saying, may actually start, or likely does start, with spiritual disciplines, particularly uh, maybe silence, solitude, contemplative prayer, allowing allowing you to develop that discipline to to not overthink, to sit in the the daily bread. Yeah, I think that's a good part. You know, it's obviously not all of it. It's it's a good part of it. Uh, interesting. Uh, Lewis felt we got to start writing some fantasy literature because the fantasy literature has been so gutted. And uh, there's a good little Malcolm Gladwell podcast on this in his podcast, Revisionist History. I, I can't name the name of the uh, one he's interviewing, but he points out with the rise of the Enlightenment, these formerly these fairy tales, in which these fairy tales were to shape the moral imagination. And many times, the good guys, uh, bad things happen to good people, and good things happen to bad people. And that was the end of the tale. With the Enlightenment, his claim is trying to defend God, they say, well, it's not rational. So good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. And they rewrote and gutted much of the tension out of these. They cleaned them up. And so you have original tales, I believe, of Sleeping Beauty. But while she's asleep, Prince comes and fornicates with her. Oh, my God, we can't have the children reading that. Because that never happens in the real world. <laughs> Shouldn't be laughing, but you get the point here. And Disney particularly cleanse them and clean them up. We know, Pat, that all through, especially in the Psalms, the cry of the psalmist, why are bad things happening to good people and good things happen to bad people? They vent their spleen, but they also know this is not the whole game. And eyes does not see, nor ear hear, nor even enter into our imagination all that is going on in the heavenly places. But they keep that tension 
in the Psalms. That tension's been taken out of the fairy tales. And um, so Lewis, amongst other things, you got to write better fairy tales. Um, they've lost their power. So I think spiritual disciplines. I also think that we've been coddled by what uh, Disney and Pixar and the rest have done to uh, imaginative literature. Most of our literature is not very imaginative. So we sort of live in our moral imagination. And if you've been coddled to think, good things happen to good people. So take Proverbs and treat it like a maxim, a rule, an ironclad rule. Train up your child and they will not depart. Train up a child in the faith and will not depart. We train them up. And then the little so-and-so ran off and went crazy in college. What the heck's going on there? What the heck's going on there is your view of the gospel, salvation, your body, moral imagination, all that you've forgotten. And you've forgotten it to some degree because we are a faith where a lot of Christians want to live in a Christian cult de sac where the kids are safe, big bad world doesn't come in. Uh, we don't have to think about what it would be to be a Christian who's been um, put on a boat and put out to sea and, and take them pushed away from Miramar and all your home or the de-Christianization that's going on in the Middle East, 1.4 million Christians who have watched their churches destroyed. This is going on in China. This is going on throughout the world. And we are blithe to it because ours is a coddled Christianity. We don't like stress. 